The year was 1905. The contenders were calling him out. England was beckoning, and the President of the United States has an offer he can't refuse. It's the story of Tom Jenkins, Part 7. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. You did it. You're here. I'm here. We're here together. You walked through the door. You went through the portal. You crossed the threshold through time and space itself to a world, an entity, a thing that is eternal beyond all concepts of spatial relationships. It's pro wrestling. What am I talking about? Who am I? What's going on? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a professional wrestling promoter, a professional wrestling booker, but more importantly for today, a professional wrestling historian. We have been deep diving into the world of Tom Jenkins. You might notice that when you see part seven on there. So if this is your first time tuning into the podcast, awesome. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. But if you aren't familiar with the world of professional wrestling in the early 1900s, you might want to start with part one. We are doing the deepest possible, most detailed biography of the man that I could possibly do. So yeah, this might be just a bunch of nonsense to you if you don't already have the groundwork laid. So go back, listen to part one. Hopefully you like it parts two through six as well. So by the time you get here to part seven, you go, yes, I am knowledgeable and invested in this story. Pray tell continue. And I also want to take a moment and thank those who have made research donations to the show. Lydia, Mike, Dale, and Kathleen, thank you so much. Uh, The research donations, I'm not you know, not required, but deeply appreciated because doing this show is not free. I wish it were, I would happily do it for free, but hosting the site, having access to the newspaper archives, all of these do cost a little bit of money. So when people send me a few bucks here and there, I am eternally grateful because that keeps the show going and uh, yeah, makes it a lot easier to put together. And I also want to give my typical historian disclaimer on this story. I am putting together the best story possible with the resources that I have available. I am digging through archives. I am reading old issues of the New York Times and the Chicago Tribune and so on and so forth to piece together the story you are hearing today. I am putting together the with, with whatever conjecture from knowing the wrestling business that is in my heart, history is taking facts and turning it into a story. Hopefully I'm doing the best job possible. And if you say, hey, dummy, well, what about this article over here that claimed this or this book or this story? Well, guess what? There might be a discrepancy on my side, might be a discrepancy on that side, because wrestling history is a hard thing to patch together. It's a matter of putting together newspaper articles about the athletes themselves and the promoters and the venues and trying to ascertain, if not outright, you know, infer the purposes for things, the reasoning for things. I've been a wrestling promoter for a decade, so I feel that does give me a better insight into it than a lot of people might have. That also might just be my ego speaking. I am awfully full of myself. Success does that to a man. Um, But I feel I'm doing a very good job because the sources can sometimes be iffy. 
Sometimes a news reporter doesn't care about wrestling. Sometimes they don't understand what they're looking at. Sometimes the names aren't even right. Sometimes the attendance numbers are completely goofy. Sometimes the author had to catch a train back to whatever city they live in and left before the match is over. Sometimes they rely on associate press articles or thing information from other people so they get it second or third hand and in that game of telephone the results change, details change, times change. It makes it a little difficult to put that big picture together without reading five or six articles on the same match and then trying to find enough overlapping information to kind of come to what you hope is as close to the truth as possible. That's what I do. That's what I love doing. Hopefully you like hearing it. And where we left off last time was that June 10th, 1905, New York City, behind the scenes, practically private match between Fred Beale and Tom Jenkins, with only about 100 people watching it, 100 people betting on it. And I do want to revisit this because it is important for what comes next. Because this is a match that I almost guarantee, if I was a betting man, I would put money on this being a real shoot match, not a work, mostly because... They couldn't sell a like a couple thousand tickets. They couldn't get Madison Square Garden. They couldn't get a big venue. I feel that Harvey Parker, Beale's manager and person who promoted this, was really just running his gosh darn mouth. He was trying to get his and his uh, his client's name in the papers. And Tom Jenkins took the match, but he didn't even probably think about it or know about it or care about it until it was pretty much on top of him. And he had a choice of actually wrestling Fred Beale or kind of losing face in the press because he didn't reply. So therefore, it looks like he's dodging Fred Beale. So I think he had to step up and say, cool, man. Well, let's have a match. Well, you didn't plan things right. So, hey, I have a friend's gymnasium over here. We can get a couple people to uh, put that together and I will whoop your ass there. And whoop his ass he did. He won two, He won the two out of three. He won the match despite Beal being a very young, aggressive, hungry wrestler. The only way this could really be a work is if it was some long-term thinking to set up later matches down the road, which I don't think it was. He didn't necessarily see the, the value of Fred Beal at that point, and probably rightfully so. And unless you can really clean up with high dollar bets with only about 100 people there, well, especially with Jenkins being the, the favorite, being the, the top guy and all, I really don't see any financial angle or advantage to this being a worked match in a gymnasium in front of 100 people, possibly less. So this is probably a case of a shoot wrestling match. Jenkins comes out on top. Parker and Beal kind of, they had their excuses where, you know, where Beal claims he was rammed into the wall and had the wind knocked out of him because there's always an excuse at the end of a loss. That's the nature of pro wrestling when you don't get the W. But according to the August 8th, 1905 Waterbury Democrat, Parker at it again. Harvey Parker is back in the news, claiming he has matched Fred Beale against Tom Jenkins in Madison Square Garden in the first week of October. 
Parker claimed that in the private match, Beale was put as a disadvantage because the ring was too small and the room was, quote, so stuffy and close that it was rather trying on the nerves of the man. Again, everyone has an excuse when you lose. And on August 9th, 1905, Newspapers coast to coast started printing a statement from George Hackenschmidt, the man who has now beat Jenkins twice, about the state of American wrestling. Quote, One thing I could not understand about America, said Hack, was the faking methods of some of the wrestlers. Whenever I went to seek a match, I was confronted by a lot of schemers who made all sorts of unsportsmanlike propositions to me. When they saw that I was not a faker, they avoided me and began to say unkind things about me. I guess I became unpopular with some of them, but I don't mind this so long as I have a better element on my side. So again, Hackenschmidt, who I do buy into his I-don't-do-worked-match persona, his I-don't-do-worked-matches uh, you know, public policy, and... You know, it just seemed like he was more... There's two ways to fix a match. One is to prearrange it. There's it's, there's an agreement up front that one man will lose. And the other is to stack things in your deck during a legitimate competition. And that's something that Hackenschmidt did most of his career. He would say, I'm only wrestling under these rules. And this person has to be vetted by my people. And I get to pick the referee. And I get to choose this. And it has to be under these terms. It's very much like how, you know, like Mayweather, you know, picks his opponents. Where you stay undefeated, not because you you may be the best. and But you definitely hedge your bets based on how you're putting together your uh, your tours, your tournaments, your matches, your big money, whatevers, because yes, these become legitimate wins in that he actually beat that person, but you do stack the advantage in your way. And when he comes to America, where the worked prearranged match for the sake of burning the betters was the norm, he really didn't get along with anybody because everybody was wanting to work the matches in that contemporary way of it being a predetermined outcome. He wanted to do things in the old carnival sense where everything was so stacked in his already enormous talented favor that it became an almost guarantee of him winning. So yes, he was in a way, an honest athlete in a very dishonest business who then came to a very dishonest country and therefore had a little bit of bitterness about that adventure. And Hackenschmidt thus was much happier to be back in the United Kingdom, back in London, back to business as he saw fit, as he preferred, as he would do it. But speaking of England, the Buffalo Inquirer on August 11th Jenkins sails for England, will meet all comers there, is on a pleasure trip. Quote, Tom Jenkins will sail for England Saturday on the steamship New York. The wrestler will meet all comers in England and will make a tour of the continent, taking in the tournaments and big matches in Paris and Berlin. He has mapped out no regular program, and his trip, while a busy one, will be a pleasure-seeking tour. Many newspapers speculated that he was seeking another match against Hackenschmidt. So Jenkins was heading back to England, and it did seem like he was heading over there for matches, but also kind of seemed like he was more on vacation, kind of having that 
oh, I'll be in the country, and if there's any good matches, by all means, I will take them. But more importantly, I will be seeing the sights and doing whatever it is a tourist does in 1905. And if any good work comes my way, by all means, I'll take it so long as it pays well. You see this a lot with European and um, Japanese wrestlers today where it's like, hey, I want a paid vacation in the United States. I will work one, maybe two matches a week to fund me being able to travel around, go see the sights, visit old friends, and have an adventure. It's good work if you can get it when you're a star of that quality. But wrestling-wise, what would await an American in England at this point? The August 13th Tacoma Daily Ledger and many other papers printed Wrestlers of Europe Outclass Americans. John C. Myers says that there are 30 men who can throw Jenkins or Gotch. The author covers the views regarding the Bostock's Carnival Tournament in London the following year and how Hackenschmidt, quote, will meet with much more violent opposition than he met from Tom Jenkins, America's greatest wrestler. Another article in the Washington Times on August 14th stated, quote, The big fellow thinks he can swell his bankroll much quicker in foreign lands than he can in this country. To sum it up, it lists the terrifying continental, Russian, Ottoman, and other wrestlers that will congregate for the tournament. Paul Pons, Nishke of Berlin, Peterson the Great Dane. And no, not that kind of Great Dane. Peteroff the Giant Bulgarian, quote, whom many critics of the wrestling game declare as a stronger and faster man than Hackenschmidt. It concludes with, quote, John C. Mayer scoffs at the idea of America sending representatives. He declares that our best men, Jenkins and Gotch, would be the poorest of the meeting and would be surely humiliated. And this can sound like he's hyping a blood sports style movie tournament or an early promotion war before the internet, but there is a certain truth to this because these tournaments were held under Greco-Roman rules, which was still popular in Europe. And how well would a catch-as-catch-can specialist fare under Greco-Roman rules against much larger men? Well, about as well as Jenkins did against Hackenschmidt. Keep in mind, once again, Greco-Roman rules and catch-as-catch-can rules, even when done in legitimate competition, are still a different sport altogether. With Greco-Roman rules, specifically, there's the lack of leg attacks. You can't do a double leg. You can't do a single leg. Everything is from the waist up. So, yes, even if this was just a situation of comparing legitimate athlete versus legitimate athlete, you have a different rule set. You have a different strategy. You have a different plan. You have different concepts of weight classes. If there's gonna be even weight classes, you have all the advantages for the big Greco-Roman men who do nothing but compete in Greco-Roman wrestling, most often legitimately, versus a man like Tom Jenkins or Frank Gotch who are legitimate, dangerous, catch-as-catch-can wrestlers. Despite the myriad of worked matches, keep in mind, these are still guys who know how to put a hold on you. These are guys who come from that, you know, that circus and vaudeville theater challenge match background, where they know how to tie you in knots. They know how to hurt you. But most of their holds and strategies and the way they get a man on the ground to control them are not allowed in Greco-Roman wrestling. 
So it's kind of like that, you know, you put a, like a karate, almost a karate style kickboxer from the early 80s and, and you put him in the ring with a Muay Thai fighter or a Dutch style kickboxing, you will have a huge clash of styles because despite the cosmetic appearances, in a way, they're completely different sports with different tools and different strategies. They don't necessarily translate. So while in fact that, you know, that criticism is correct, in spirit, it's a little bit misleading. Plus, we need to talk about money. Because why on earth would Frank Gotch and Tom Jenkins, who make a shitload of money as professional wrestlers in the United States, take the time, the effort, the expense of going to Europe to compete in a month-long tournament under a rule set that they don't train under for the amount of money that they probably would make in one match back in the United States, only to possibly be humiliated with a big loss to a big man who's good at Greco-Roman. There's no advantage in doing that. You know, that's that's some weird, like, I want to climb the mountain because it's their bullshit. And when you're, you're your next meal, your next home purchase, the next big horse purchase, I don't know what people bought in 1905, but whatever it is, that money comes a lot easier by working matches in the United States. So, yes, those guys might have been better competitive Greco-Roman wrestlers, but you know what? I bet their bank account did not look nearly as good as Gotch and Jenkins's did. In the Marshfield News and Wisconsin Hub on August 17th, no Beal match. Jenkins preparing to leave on European trip. Quote, Fred Beal states that there is no truth in the recent published report that he has been matched to wrestle Tom Jenkins in October. Which is a cute way to say, my manager was talking out of his ass, hoping to get the match made. Though, of course, he claimed that Jenkins is ducking him, and the only reason Jenkins won was, quote, the match was held before a small party of Jenkins' close friends. They could not have the champion defeated by an unknown from the backwoods of Wisconsin. Beal says he had to wrestle against both a referee and Jenkins, that he had several holds on his opponent, which would have been called falls by a referee who had no interest in the results of the match. So once again, we have a hot young up-and-comer running his goddamn mouth, having a manager who runs his mouth even more, and here's the fun way of doing this. You see this in modern fighting today, and in pro wrestling uh, for different reasons, for storyline purposes, the hey, I want to fight this guy who either just beat me or I've never wrestled before and honestly am not in line for a title shot or a big match. But you know what? If he doesn't wrestle me, then you know what? He's a coward, uh, an absolute yellow belly. He's ducking me. Meanwhile, Jenkins is trying to put together big money matches, big money wins, and not really paying heed to this weird little ankle biter who's chasing him professionally at this point. The Waterbury Democrat on September 12, 1905, reported that Jenkins had arrived in England, sent out letters to newspapers there, challenging any wrestler in England, Ireland, Scotland, or Wales, quote, Jenkins received very few encouraging responses. Jenkins stated that, quote, I trust I will be accommodated, for I hate to go home without a match. 
before launching into a tirade about how boxers make more than wrestlers, despite wrestlers having to work harder, and that if he had his life to do over again, he'd be a boxer. So again, he's weirdly fixating on this weird entitled grievance about how if he were a boxer, he'd get more respect and more money. Again, kind of shitting on the business that pays his bills. Whatever, weird choice, weird fixation. But what it comes down to at this point is he went to England challenging everyone. And in England, there's not a lot of response because honestly, what's to benefit anyone? He was already over there. He had his some matches. He got completely obliterated by Hackenschmidt. So most of the like people who would work matches and the people who would only do shoot matches under each umbrella, there's no real benefit to working with Tom Jenkins because he wasn't there to do business unless a lot of money was going to trade hands. And who's going to put up a lot of money for a worked match against Tom Jenkins, who got his ass whooped by Hackenschmidt, and then he's probably just going to go back anyway. His draw power is, you know, not exactly great in England after his last trip. He was just there relatively recently. He lost to the biggest challenge around. A lot of the eyeballs just simply wouldn't follow him to the arena. And if you're there to do a shoot match, well, guess what? If you lose to Tom Jenkins, you're probably not getting that rematch. He's just going to turn around and go back the other way. So unless you're going to chase him to the United States for a rematch, it's not really worth the risk of taking a loss, taking the embarrassment to a man you're going to have to chase halfway around the world if you're going to get that second shot. The Manchester Courier and Lancashire General Advertiser on September 14th reported that Jenkins had signed articles to wrestle a two-out-of-three-falls match, catch-as-catch-can rules, against Ahmed Madrali at the Lyceum on October 2nd. Since the Madrali-Hackenschmidt match had been pushed back to December, it was 50 pounds a side and a 150-pound purse. The monetary amount, not the weight. The Glasgow Daily Record, September 8th, advertised... Tonight at 7 and 9, Tom Jenkins, the conqueror of Alex Monroe of Govan. Jenkins offers 25 pounds to any British wrestler whom he fails to throw in 15 minutes. Also featured, Ada Parker, comedian, A.F. Clifford, actor-vocalist, a whistling comedian, an animated picture called Howard and Harris in the Adventures of a Happy Tramp, prices as usual, and this ad ran for several days. So Jenkins is already back to being a theater attraction, offering open challenges, which by and large draws nine yahoos who just want to try to take a poke at the guy and try to outlast him to every one legitimate top-notch wrestler who's just looking to embarrass a man to set up a real match. Though, as we've stated a bunch of times, that is also a great way to set up a legitimate match by the promoter. You do the challenge matches. You do the, you know, outlast him by 15 minutes, win however much money, and then he does win it. So they either use that to set up a to-a-finish match, or they draw it out even longer. They say, okay, cool, well, we'll have a second match, but this time with a 30-minute time limit. And you just escalate it, and you escalate it until the betting becomes undeniable 
and then you swerve everyone, clean up, everyone goes home happy and rich unless you happen to be sitting in the audience. The Harrisburg Daily Independent on September 22, 1905, has an advertisement with, quote, Tom Jenkins, for years unconquered American heavyweight wrestler of America, states that Duffy's pure malt whiskey was the only medicine he used during the time he held the championship. I regard it as the greatest bodybuilder and nerve tonic in the world. It keeps my system in a normal, healthy condition, and I heartily recommend it to everyone who wishes to be healthy and strong. This sent me on a weird side quest to find out more about Duffy's Pure Malt Whiskey, which claimed to be not an intoxicant, but a cure for nearly every malady, including consumption, pneumonia, wish I would have had that back in January when I got sick, malaria, bronchitis, diphtheria, cholera, heart problems, stomach problems, and somehow even claims it could cure alcoholism? Another ad claimed it was single-handedly responsible for a 148-year-old man being in full position of his faculties. The ad showed photos of old people with biographies claiming that this, this malt whiskey is this only thing keeping them alive at this point, like some sort of bizarre, boozy fountain of youth claiming that this is what has kept them, you know, able-bodied and sharp of mind well into their advanced years or into the impossible old age of 148. But what was this stuff? Duffy's Pure Malt Whiskey was a 91-proof bottle-aged rocket fuel with some syrup added for flavor and color. The man behind it was Walter B. Duffy, who claimed that his product was created decades ago by one of the greatest scientists in the world, and used an image of a scientist doing science things with several beakers to drive home the point. So yeah, they're advertising this as a scientific breakthrough, an image of a mad scientist's lab uh, explaining how the greatest scientist in the world has slapped this together. It was pure quackery and a complete scam in an era of much medical quackery and many scams. But why sell it as medicine instead of just a great way to get shit-faced? Tax evasion, that's why. During the Spanish-American War, booze was highly taxed, but medicine was not. So Duffy's, and apparently quite a few others, changed up the way they marketed their product. It was now no longer just a great way to black out the horrors of existence and punish your liver and your head the next day. It was now medicine. It was a great nerve tonic. You know, a great way to say this'll give you all the courage a drunken moron can possibly have. And it is fantastic that Tom Jenkins, who was a teetotaler, a man who was intent on being sober of mind and body, was the spokesperson, the face on the advertisement, the man claiming in the newspapers that, yes, this is this is what I drink to get ready for matches. And if anybody's been in, in athletics, like actual like wrestling, boxing, MMA, Man, there is nothing worse for you than getting loaded up on cheap whiskey 
at any point during a training camp getting ready for a match. But I'm sure he made a shitload of money, so good for him. The September 22nd Nottingham Evening News reported that after his match with Madrali, Jenkins would next wrestle Sandow's Indian for 150 aside. The Glasgow Daily Record and Mail on September 25th disappointed audience, unsatisfactory finish to the Monroe-Jenkins match. The previous Saturday afternoon, September 23rd at the Palace Theatre in Glasgow, there was a rematch between Alexander Monroe and Tom Jenkins, who had been advertised as the guy who beat Monroe, who was less than pleased with this. There's uh, probably a little bit of hurt feelings when an American comes to your country, beats you in a match, and when he returns, you've been rehabbing your image, you've been kicking ass, you've been winning matches, and this asshole rides back into town and says, hey, I'm the guy who beat Monroe. Come get me. 3,000 people showed up, and the price of admission had been raised. Quote, Monroe, who was the bigger and stronger-looking man, was freely expected to regain the laurels he lost at Ebrox Park. But although the Govan man showed all his wanted effectiveness and holds in pressure in maneuvering for a favorable attitude, he was outwitted by the American, who was on the afternoon showing, was the more skillful, as he appeared to also be the more experienced wrestler. And there was also concern that the referee was essentially an employee of Hackenschmidt. Yeah, I guess they're, they're, they're worried that the referee is coming in, knowing that both men eventually are going to want a shot at uh, Hackenschmidt, maybe judging who maybe should be going over, bearing who should not, all in accordance with the boss or his potential boss, if indeed that was his boss. At the 15-minute mark, the men were separated. Quote, It was alleged that Jenkins had used the stranglehold. Jenkins warmly repudiated the allegation, but the audience hooted and jeered at him. After a rest of five minutes, the men were again in grips. Jenkins at once became the aggressor and cleverly had his man under. At this stage, the referee disqualified Jenkins for persisting in using the stranglehold. He accordingly awarded the match to Monroe. Monroe was loudly cheered by his partisans, but there was a general feeling among the audience that the match was unsatisfactory. The paper immediately began running the advertisement for Madrali versus Jenkins at the Lyceum on October 2nd. On September 29th, the Glasgow Daily Record printed Jenkins' telegraph, quote, Alex Monroe should be as dissatisfied with the results of last Saturday's match as I am, and equally anxious to prove who is the better man. Will wrestling him for a hundred aside, best two out of three falls any time in October if Mr. G.T. Dunning of London Sportsman will referee. So, questions, questions, questions. Question one, was this a legitimate match? You know, it seemed like there was enough legitimate annoyance between the two men that a real match could be, uh, could, could be the way to do things. If it wasn't a real match, then what was the purpose of the weird DQ finish? Was it a way to let Monroe say face without an actual loss 
being attached to his record. So Jenkins was again able to go in and get DQ'd off of rough tactics, much like when he dropped the belt to Frank Gotch. Well, that's entirely possible as well. So we have to decide, was that a real match for these reasons or was it a worked match in order for, uh, you know, Monroe to kind of rebuild, rehab his image. Jenkins loses, but it's only through a DQ. And then either the referee really was an agent of Hackenschmidt in this intrigue-filled world of pro wrestling, and he was there to clip the wings of Jenkins so he didn't have a leg to stand on when calling out Hackenschmidt later on. So there's, or was that just an excuse made for, you know, again, all of this ballyhoo, all of this drama, all of this nonsense. You can look at this so many ways. And, you know, like, honestly, it probably was a work, but because Jenkins knew he wasn't going to get another shot at Hackenschmidt over there. So it was probably a situation where make as much money doing whatever you can without really damaging your win-loss record. Everyone wins because nobody really lost. So make up your own decision based on that. The London Evening Standard and St. James Gazette on October 2nd, the Jenkins and Madrali match, quote, a wrestling match under catches catch can rules for a purse of 150 and 50 aside. Between Madrali, the terrible Turk, and Jenkins, the American, took place at the Lyceum this afternoon. By the time the men took the mat at four o'clock, the house was crowded in every part, the audience being almost entirely composed of men. At the outset, the Turk assumed the aggressive, Jenkins appearing to be taking matters very easily. Several times, when in difficulties, he saved the situation by crawling off the mat, which tactics brought forth some uncomplimentary yells and remarks from a large section of the audience. Jenkins seems to be worried by a bandage around his left knee, which became displaced almost each time Madrali brought him to the mat. At the end of ten minutes, the American suddenly assumed the aggressive, but the Turk proved too wary to be caught napping, and soon was again doing most of the work. This he continued until he succeeded in bringing both Jenkins' shoulders to the mat, and thus gaining the first fall in 19 minutes, 43 seconds. Madrali was declared the winner, as Jenkins could not continue the match after about 21 minutes into the second bout. It was a very popular win. Jenkins was helped off the stage in a bit of collapse. The Birmingham England Daily Mail pointed out that Madrali was three and a half inches taller and outweighed Jenkins by two stones, which is 28 pounds. On the third, the Birmingham Gazette and Express printed, Tom Jenkins, no match for the Turk. The article claimed that there was suspicions that Madrali was strangling Jenkins while smothering him from a top position. That, quote, elaborate detail is not necessary. As from the start, Madrali virtually had to make up his mind what would be the best way to pin his crafty opponent's shoulders down. The Turk appeared decisively slow, and against such a veritable bundle of tricks as Jenkins, his wrestling skill was not particularly inspired. The article claimed that the crowd got behind Madrali for more or less carrying Jenkins for a longer match, and that, quote, Jenkins occasionally and accidentally lissavat blows on Madrali's countenance were happily glossed over once everyone had done a lot of talking all at once. So, what, what a what a match? Because Madrali was more or less spinning his wheels 
waiting for his match against Hackenschmidt. It got pushed back. Jenkins was available. I'm sure they, again, saw a great way to make money to elevate Madrali with a win over Jenkins, but keeping Jenkins intact because, you know, he came in with a bandaged knee. He was wearing probably something like a knee brace and it kept slipping down and he had to keep readjusting it, visually bringing attention to his injured knee so that when he eventually loses to the bigger man and he didn't even like, you know, get pinned a second time or tap out to a hold. He simply couldn't go on. He was too worn down from wrestling the bigger man while dealing with a clearly visibly injured knee. We have record preserving pro wrestling yet again. I'm sure Tom Jenkins made some decent money off of this. He put him over without taking an actual loss. Kind of same thing with Monroe, but going injury instead of fouls. You know, you you never go for the, the same story twice. So he gets to kind of preserve his record where it's a loss, but not technically a loss. He didn't lose clean. He made some money. Uh, Drawley was able to claim a win over Jenkins, who, you know, also lost to Hackenschmidt. So it makes him look like he's on the level of Hackenschmidt to further boost his image and sell more tickets and probably his profit point for the upcoming match against George Hackenschmidt. So on this trip, we are now seeing Jenkins kind of being like what a what a big name indie wrestler is on the independents, kind of the low level independent shows where he is the star visiting the town and he's there to put over your top guy. And he may not want to lose cleanly, but he's going to lose nonetheless and thus elevate the guy he just worked with in his hometown. It's, again, Pro Wrestling 101. It's the way the story is told. It's how the traveling wrestler makes his money, how the hometown wrestler continues his streak. And news of this match even crossed the ocean. The October 3rd, 1905 New York Times. American Wrestler Throne! Exclamation point in print. In London, Jenkins was beaten by Turkish wrestler Ahmed Madrali, another terrible Turk. Why is it never an outrageous Ottoman? Just my aside. The rules were catch as catch can for 500 aside and 750. The Turk, who is both taller and heavier than the American, had all the advantage of the bouts. He secured the first fall in 10 minutes, 48 seconds, and the second in 22 minutes, 46 seconds. It is understood that Madrali will challenge George Hackenschmidt, the Russian champion. And if you listen to our Hackenschmidt episode, you know how well that went. Call back. The Nebraska Evening World Herald on October 15th reported, Jenkins coming home. After his defeat at the hands of Madrali, Jenkins would be returning to the U.S. in November, but was trying to secure a match with Jawo Miyaki or Sandow's Hindu. And meanwhile, Madrali was set for a match with Hackenschmidt. And beneath that article was something very curious. Jiu-Jitsu in Paris. A novel fight is on the carpet. A jiu-jitsu expert is to meet a master of the French art of savat. The encounter is to come off privately and is to be arranged as a duel with seconds. The rules of the contest sound alarming. Practically every method of attack will be allowed, except biting and gouging out the adversary's eyes. Further in the article, these tricks 
usually forbidden, but considered allowable against jiu-jitsu, include butting with a head, tripping up with the hands or feet, wrestling and kicks to any part of the body. The seconds and umpire will stop the fight whenever it becomes brutal. It is hard to see how it could be anything else. Does this sound like another sport to you? Does this sound in late 1905 like the first UFC? Because it sounds a lot like that to me. It sounds like a weird jujitsu-themed rough-and-tumble event because this 100% sounds like an early Ultimate Fighting Championship type of thing, uh, Valley Tudo in Brazil type of thing. So hearing the shock and awe of a 1905 crowd seeing essentially proto-MMA, no holds barred, whatever you want to call it, taking on the the venues of Paris. Just what a delightful little thing to discover, as far as I'm concerned. And back in the United States, Ferdinand Grun, an English wrestler and strongman born of German parents, was in the U.S. The New York Evening World on October 26th described him as, quote, a second Hackenschmidt, and that he was after a match with Jenkins upon his return. The October 27th Buffalo Inquirer claimed that Grun, quote, broke all of the weightlifting records in New York yesterday, saying he has $5,000 backing to wrestle Jenkins in the metropolis. Who boy. Who boy. What a what, what a bold move that is. You always got to love that they're always the next this and that. The next Jenkins. The next Gotch. The next Hackenschmidt. You still see that today when they're like, oh, he's the, the next Tyson. You know, somebody just has a cursory or cosmetic resemblance. It's a great way to sell tickets on somebody because you are saying this is the clearly the next this guy because they don't have the ability to stand on their own and sell tickets at this point. You have to make a point of comparison. This is me talking as a promoter, as a marketer, as somebody whose ability to sell tickets is what uh, pays a good chunk of my bills. So I get it. Is it a fair trick? No. Is it a carny trick? Yes, but it's an effective trick. And he was hoping to take this enormous backing, which I can't imagine was real, but it very well may be, and put it on the line to get that shot at Jenkins. Because Jenkins, still kind of the top guy. He had the title. He was the the man everybody wanted to beat. And that puts you in a position where you either get an out-of-nowhere win over the top guy, or you try to push him so far that you at least make a name for yourself by losing to him. Where if you go, ha, I went up against the champion, and yes, I lost two out of three, but I almost won so many times. And did I mention that I kind of, I tweaked my ankle last week, so I wasn't at 100%. But next time, I'll mop the floor with him. So yeah, it's trying to talk your way into a big payday, a big opportunity, a big wrestling moment. But Something happened that would change Jenkins' life and career forever. The October 27th, Minneapolis Journal. Jenkins draws a government plum. Quote, Tom Jenkins, the champion wrestler of America, has been appointed boxing and wrestling instructor at the National Military Academy at West Point by President Roosevelt. 
Jenkins arrived in response to a cable from the Commandant of the Academy in New York from London yesterday and left last night for his home in Cleveland, where he will spend two days and then go to West Point to take up his new duties. The Buffalo Inquirer on October 28th claimed that Jenkins wouldn't last long in such a position because he could make more money in a single night of wrestling than he could in six months as an instructor and that, quote, he may not be as good as he once was, but he can still hold his own with the best of them. So, wow, what a job opportunity. Roosevelt, well-known sportsman, well-known admirer of grapplers, wrestlers, boxers, the manly arts, if you will. So to get an appointment to West Point like that is huge. And why did he accept it? Well, most likely, stability. He was kind of, despite still kind of being in a great athletic prime, he was kind of on the backslide of his career. Gotch was the future. He was still a top guy, Jenkins being the guy in question. He was still a top guy. He was still a draw. He could. St he was still the guy being called out by the youngins trying to make names for themselves. But when you hit that point, how many more years do you have? How long before you're the, the old man still trying to sell tickets in Salt Lake City because you can't headline in New York? The wrestling world, like all athletics, is a cruel place and no country for old men. So seeing an opportunity to take up a coaching position, a teaching position, where you get to stay home, you get to go have dinner at your house every single night. You don't have to travel constantly. You don't have to constantly be coming up with carny swindles or training for legitimate matches. You don't have to constantly be worried looking over your shoulder in a cutthroat profession so yes this was a big opportunity and he was very smart to take it but while still in england uh this was this was kind of an interesting thing the waterbury democrat on october 28th covered jenkins talk in london comparing english and american catches catch can some highlights were his desire to give the referee the power to break up submissions that are used to hurt an opponent without pinning him, that the full Nelson should be banned, and that matches should have two to four judges to avoid controversial or corrupt decisions. He also said it should be illegal to interlace your fingers to secure a hold. And for legitimate, competitive sports, all of these are actually fairly smart, because we saw a lot, particularly when we talked about Evan the Strangler Lewis, if a referee doesn't know what a submission hold is or what it looks like, if he's uneducated on that, or if he doesn't have the authority to put an end to it you know, via the rules, people can get hurt very badly. Because in catches Catch Can, usually a submission hold is not the ends to itself by making them tap if it happens perfect but a lot of times the holds are very good for turning people over on their back either through the leverage of the hold or the fear of injury they will roll over and take the pin rather than taking a dislocated elbow you know especially back in these days when heck you get that type of injury the recovery time is enormous 
if you ever recover fully at all. So yes, for a smart for a real match, that's great. You also have that idea of multiple judges, multiple referees, so you couldn't have that one, you know, corrupt referee or that corrupt judge who is clearly on the side of this guy or has a side bet. It does make it a little more spread out responsibility and viewpoint wise. It's kind of like how modern boxing and MMA is where you have multiple judges. Not a bad idea if it's a real match. Same thing with the interlacing of the fingers, another smart move, which is more a that's more on you, you idiot type of thing, because there are a lot of stronger grips than interlacing your fingers. I mean, yeah, from like a Nelson, you can do a pretty good um, you know, bit of leveraging there. But, but you know, a lot of times, uh, more like a tie plum grip, grabbing your own wrist with your you know, hand on you, the head, a monkey grip, a gable grip, all of these things are going to prove a lot stronger without giving up the exposure of your fingers that can be grabbed and yanked, thus resulting in a broken finger. If you remember our Olympic wrestling episode, looking at the ancient Olympics, even ancient wrestling and pancreas at certain points banned the breaking of fingers because, hey, you know what? I get you in a full Nelson I'm trying to work, I'm trying to press down. You're able to reach up, grab a finger, and twist as hard as you can. Well, now my finger's broken. Now I'm shrieking in pain and crying like a child, like I do when I stub my toe. I'm a very cowardly man, that's just how I am. But it's very anticlimactic to any kind of wrestling match because shoot or worked, a wrestling match succeeds based on the amount of excitement it elicits from the audience. So if I'm working a hold and you reach up and snap my finger, that's going to get a lot of booze, but it's also not such a riot-causing outrage that people are going to still be emotional about it. Like, it's such a small infraction turned into a fracture that... I just can't see a lot of people really like building up on a rematch for that, like following somebody as a heel champ the way they did, like they did with Evan Lewis. It's it's just bad for business, both legitimately and and worked wise. So, yeah, no, that's a that's a little thing that is right to uh, be be kind of banned from the sport. In the Buffalo Inquirer on November 16th, a reply to the question, what do you think of the retirement of Tom Jenkins? With, I don't know. The only way I can figure it out is that he decided to retire on his laurels, afraid that someone would take the championship away from him. And yes, that is a concern. That is a legitimate complaint. That is something that bears discussion and examination because it seems like that job offer came probably while he was overseas or was just about to take off. So he was put in a position where he was going to go start coaching and teaching at West Point, which, as you can imagine, very time-consuming. Meanwhile, he was still holding the American Championship, and everybody wanted a piece of that. And in pro wrestling, a lot of times, the terminology is going out on your shield. You know, you, you put over the next generation, you don't take the belt with you, you don't pull a Muldoon and retire with it still around, that belt still around your waist. You do the right thing, you put somebody over, you let somebody else be champion, and you go your merry way. So I'm curious if this was 
you know what, just the plan didn't come together quickly enough for this to happen, or if it's something where he was still working out the terms for doing matches while teaching, because clearly he wasn't going to turn down this job opportunity, so he had to figure out what was the next step in his wrestling career while still maintaining his coaching teaching position. But of course, everybody sees this as the perfect time to start talking shit. Everybody's calling him out. Everybody's calling him a coward. Everybody's saying that he's trying to retire with the championship. He's trying to take them, take the belt and run and make all of wrestling look bad. And, you know, probably every other insult being spoken that you can imagine because he needs to do the right thing. He needs to you know, like lose his title or at least defend it on the regular. So it puts him in a weird position, both professionally and publicly. And that's not an easy equation to uh, to solve, particularly when you are traveling from America to England, England to America, doing wrestling matches, doing these things in the year 1905, where you are communicating via telegraph. So yes, it's a bit of a mess. How will it unfold? How will it untangle? Well, we'll get to that in our next episode because yes, the story of Tim Tom Jenkins is continuing. I wanted to do the biggest, best biography of the man possible. I feel like we're doing this. Hopefully you agree. Hopefully you're enjoying this. Hopefully you're still with me, not simply looking at the titles of the episodes and going, oh, wait till what comes next even though I will tell you what comes next after the Tom Jenkins series is going to be freaking amazing. But you have to wait a few more weeks for that because we have at least one more episode of the Tom Jenkins story. So let me know what you're thinking. I mean, seriously, I want to know your opinions on what is going on with the show, how you're liking it. I, I, I crave your feedback. So let me know either on social media, the emails on all the social media as well. Leave a comment, leave a complaint, leave some insight. Let me know how this is the brightest point of your month, if there's anybody out there in that situation. I'm going to be posting a lot of the headlines and photos and things that I find, especially about Duffy's malt liquor. Uh, I swear to God, that advertisement haunted me for weeks because it ran in almost every single paper for months. So while doing my research, I'm going through everything involving Tom Jenkins, and for a while, every other hit in the databases was that goddamn advertisement. So it haunted me, just like it probably haunted the liver-damaged, half-blind people who drank that garbage, but that's their problem in hell or wherever they went, because this is a century ago. So that's my problem, that's their problem, not your problem. Like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter and Instagram to kind of check out all the extras. And otherwise, enjoy your next two weeks, and you'll hear from me then. Thanks, everybody. Okay.